Do you ever get a sense that there can be a certain profound opposition, or at the very least, a strained tension between what goes on here in these walls and the values, the standards, what's upheld outside? the world, we might say. If you do, I'd like to welcome you to the club. We, we have t-shirts, in fact. But it's nothing new, as you're doubtless aware. There has always been, for believers, this sense of tension, this sense of difficulty, this sense of opposition. Because we are at once believers who are in the world, and yet at the same time, we're called not to be of the world. We're reminded constantly that we have been proportioned by grace to a final end, the beatific vision which far exceeds anything this world could give and any punishment this world could mete out. And yet here we are, implicated deeply with our neighbors, wherein the love we have for God is manifested and indeed is expressed in the love we show for one another. So how are we to sort this out? St. Augustine famously used the dichotomy or the expression of the city of man and the city of God. His famous work, called the city of God, expresses this tension, this difficulty for Christians. And the sense of crisis has lasted from the very beginning right up until this day. How are we supposed to interact with Caesar in every age, in all his different guises? How are we to understand this tension which lies at the very heart of not being yet part of the kingdom of heaven and yet clearly on our way there? The gospel today shows that the Pharisees wanted to exploit this sense of tension, this dichotomy. The Pharisees, who very well could have been members of the U.S. Senate today for their debating technique and their trapped questions, decided to pose an impossible test for Christ. He either would have to alienate his followers and his prospective followers by showing himself to be a stooge of the Roman occupiers. Yes, Pay the census tax and thereby reveal yourself just to be another tool of oppression. Or show yourself to be a zealot, show yourself to be a rebel and allow the hand of Rome to come and crush you. It's a great question. They're good debaters. Christ has a marvelous response. On the level of debate, of course, he neatly evades the trap that they set for him. 
Render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. But it's so much more than just a neat trick or a neat answer. What doesn't belong to God? What doesn't belong to God? He made us. We belong to him. Everything belongs to God. The erring assumption at the heart of the Pharisees' question and at the heart of so many successive generations of believers who have created this opposition between God and their secular obligations as if they are on an equal plane, as if they can share the same level, is to confuse the fact that they are not on a level plane, but rather a vertical one. It is God to whom we owe our all. It is God who gave Caesar everything. It is God who placed Caesar in his position of power, who permitted him to use his power and wealth for good or ill. It is God who allows and permits all of these things to happen. Think back to what we heard in the responsorial psalm. Give to the Lord, you families of nations. Give to the Lord glory and praise. Give to the Lord the glory. Do his name. This is St. Augustine's point again and again. Human beings were made to give sacrifice to God, made to give right worship to God with our whole beings, our whole selves. Everything we have, all our power, all our wealth, all our status, any good thing you have, any good thing you enjoy, any suffering you endure, everything render unto God, for to God it belongs. What belongs to God? Everything. But that doesn't end the question, because God doesn't exist apart from the creation that he made. He put us in this context, and he speaks to us through other human beings. He is made in order, and we live in society. We are known as human beings with a political nature, which means that the only way we can really flourish is by living in common together, which can be terribly frustrating. But the same truth remains. God can work precisely through our humanity, precisely through our politics, to bring us closer to him. What remains for the Christian and what makes the Christian a better citizen than anyone else is that he, 
or she never confuses the city of man for being the final end. The Christian never makes the mistake that this is the most important thing. It enables the Christian to follow the counsel of St. Peter, to honor the emperor, and to love the common good. Why? Why honor an emperor who does such wicked things? Why, in the first reading, did Isaiah the prophet refer to Cyrus, a pagan, as the Lord's anointed? Because the whole point of our Christian life is to see things as they are, to recognize God's providence working through created causes, working through imperfect leaders, working through our own imperfect agency. Would that everything were so much neater and tidier. Would that each generation were not confronted with its own difficult, painful, and vexing questions of conscience and prudence. But it is a good thing because it gives us a chance to be conformed to the cross in our own way. And the same question confronted Christ. And the same question confronts every generation of Christians. We can no more be extracted from these questions than we could be extracted from our own humanity. For this is precisely the way in which we are called to be lights to the world, as we heard in the Alleluia verse right before the gospel. Recognizing the ways of providence in each of our lives, we're called to render unto God all of our gifts and know that whether or not this age ever accepts them as fully as it ought, the city of man will never be the city of God. All that it is our part to do is to bring it closer and closer because our eyes remain ever fixed on the eternal Jerusalem, which is our true and final end, whence we came and to which we are still heading.